You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. I'm Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high-quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. Podcast. I'm joined by Kyle of Team Radical. Kyle, do you want to give the listener a little bit of context maybe into what Team Radical is and, and kind of how it got started? Yeah, I uh, started Team Radical actually in 2000, end of 2007, beginning of 2008, and uh, basically... At that time, there wasn't a, a ton. I mean, I guess there was a lot of video companies out there, but basically I wanted to get our friends together. And basically I started because back when I was in school, everybody was, you know, would always say, oh, you're you're telling fibs and everything like that. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to get a video camera. I'm going to film all this so I can back what I, what I have to say. And that's kind of where it evolved from there. And then from there, just the local buddies and everything who I knew were, were really good hunters, asked them if they were interested and they were interested in, in doing something. So we started out making DVDs and uh, going to all the consumer shows and all that good stuff, which that was fun for a while. But then um, we saw a niche, you know, everybody, you could definitely see that everything was starting to go to the web. Yeah. And I think it was 2011 or 12, I can't remember. Uh, that's when we made the switch to YouTube, and thankfully we did it when we did it because we got ahead of a lot of the game, you know, as far as getting our name out there at that point in time, and we stopped doing the DVDs. So that's kind of where we're at, and uh, I think we got 20 guys now on Team Radical. Um, that usually that can fluctuate, you know. It's it's tough because you got guys, you know, that have everyday lives, responsibilities, just like I do, kids or, or jobs and everything. And this obviously isn't our full-time gig by any means. It's just a, a fun passion. And, you know, we're able to afford to um, enjoy our passion. So that, that really works out nice. And the biggest thing, and I tell everybody this, and for me personally is someday – you know, we'll be able to go back and watch all these videos. I don't have to sit here and try to tell you the story. You can literally go watch it. And to me, that's worth and worth more than anything. So that's why I put so much heart and soul into in the video aspect of it, at least for me. Um, just because I want to go back and reflect on this someday. You know, those hunts, just the ones you just named. I know every once in a great while I go back and I watch and like, man, I wish I could, I would have done this different or something like that right now. But someday it's going to be nice just to go back and see them and say, wow, that was incredible. Mm-hmm. So you started, I, I was reading online and you guys, you got started while you're in high school filming and mm-hmm. you know, how did that kind of start? Was it, you know, you t- switching off, uh, you know, going to each other, each other's property and filming each other with your buddies or solo filming or a mix of both? Uh, yeah. How'd that look? Yeah, my buddy Jeff and I actually, we're, my buddy Jeff and uh, my buddy Brent, we actually started hunting together and filming each other. And then I don't know if you ever saw this hunt. It's on a, a DVD. The DVD is kind of embarrassing, but uh, <laughs> uh, my buddy and I, Jeff, we shot two bucks the same morning in 2008. Um, I filmed him shoot his first, and it was like a 140-inch 10-pointer. And then... It was kind of chaotic. We was filming everything, and 30 minutes later, another buck came in, and it was a Boone and Crockett 10-pointer, and I stuck him and killed him. So we shot two bucks in the same morning, 30 minutes apart, and uh, that was pretty pretty epic for sure. Yeah. Was that on – now, how does it work with your buddies uh, letting each other shoot each other's deer, or is it you hunt on their place, or how how does that work? Uh, Yeah, that's that's really changed over time for sure. Yeah. so then it didn't really matter. Um, I, I was just starting really the, the whole um, whitetail management and all that good stuff, the habitat improvements and all that. So I wasn't really in tune with all that quite yet. I was just starting it. So at that time, it really didn't matter. It was kind of one of those deals where, hey, get out of school early. Hey, you want to go, uh, you want to go hunt and things like that. And now it's like, you know, 
everything's to a T, but I still do have deer that I'm more than happy to have people to come and, and hunt with me and I film them, shoot them and whatnot. But uh, actually I'm taking a youth hunter here in just a couple of weekends, hopefully to get her her first deer. So, and I obviously let my wife shoot 196, four eight inch <laughs> giant yeah. at uh, 20 yards, but I wouldn't change anything in the world for it. I mean, that story was just epic in itself. So. Yeah. So it started out with you and a, maybe a couple of buddies and why is, why do you think it's grown to the, you know, the 20 people that you do have on there? And was it, was it, you guys want more content? You wanted to provide a, you know, different, different States or, or why, why was the, what's the, or the vision behind that? Yeah. So originally it was 17. Um, out of those 17 guys that was original, I think there is maybe four of us left on Team Radical. Oh, wow. That's kind of crazy. I know. But um, we we took it to a whole new level pretty early on. One of the things we did is we would charge, if you shot something off film, you were charged $500 fine. I mean, that's that's how, you know, and it got crazy because we were so adamant about having content. And then once we started getting content, it's like, okay. We have content, but a lot of it looks like junk. You know, it was out of focus or just grainy and or didn't really care, pay much attention to the camera, always zoomed out. And, you know, that's when we decided anybody can do that. I mean, anybody can do that. We want to make quality content. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of the turning point. And we started, you know, like I said, and guys had other responsibilities and, um, you know, life got in the way of a lot of them and decide, you know, they need to step down and uh, put their family or or whatnot in front of all that. And totally, totally expected that to happen and knew it would over time. So, so then we started searching for guys, you know, who, uh, you know, people that reached out to us and said, Hey, what does it take to be part of team radical? And, you know, one of the big things we asked right up from the get go is let's see some of your work, you know, let's see uh, some video you can't just expect to to hop on board when you don't even own a camera yet or anything like that. So, so then we started doing that. And yes, we wanted to try to cover as many states as we possibly can, and especially the Midwest, obviously. So I think we got guys in Kentucky, Michigan, Tennessee. Um, trying to think all of them here. Illinois, obviously. I think that might be it. Yeah, I think that's it. I'm probably missing one, maybe two. <laughs> <laughs> no Kansas or Oklahoma in any of those? None of them. None of them yet. I'm, I'm, I'll be looking. I'm looking for Kansas, Iowa. Oklahoma's a good one. Definitely, uh, definitely interesting. Hopefully finding some guys there. Yeah. Well, cool, man. So you talk about quality content, and that's really what you guys push out on your YouTube quite often. Everything looks crisp. It's clean. The edits are nice. I was watching your video, you guys' video today of like 30-some does in three minutes. Those montages are just, they're so interesting to watch. But, you know, how for someone that's this maybe just starting that can't afford a, a super great camera or, you know, doesn't always have a friend to go with them to video them, how do they focus on getting that quality content? Well, I guess the first thing you need to ask yourself is how committed do you want to be to your camera? And the big, the big, that that's what separates, in my opinion, the men from the boys when it comes to filming, just mm-hmm. quite frankly. So do you want to film with a camcorder or do you want to film with a DSLR style? A DSLR style, you're going to have a lot more going on and it's a lot harder to do, but the end result can be so much better, in my opinion, than a camcorder. Mm-hmm. However, a camcorder is very user-friendly, and that is what I recommend starting out with. That's what uh, almost every single one of us started out with. And then I just started learning the DSLR and and really liking it, taking pictures with it, and then started videoing with it, and really just understanding the camera and the functions, functions and what exactly each one does and why. And then I just got completely hooked on the DSLR. And it took me, uh, it was a gutsy move, but it took me a while, but I decided I'm, I'm done with the camcorders and I went straight to the DSLR. Now, however, I would say half, if not three-fourths of, of the Team Rocket guys are filming with camcorders. So 
there's tons of great options out there for for camcorders. I'm thinking you can be in the ballpark of thousand dollars, fifteen hundred dollars will get you a really good start. Really good start making some good video. That's with the mic and everything, um, and obviously your camera arm. And anymore, I've been doing more self filming than anything. And one of the horror stories I had is one of my best bucks to date with the bow was in 11, 2011. And unfortunately, the guy that was with me in the tree double punched the record button just as I was getting ready to release the arrow. Now, picture this 2 30 in the afternoon, wide open, into my clover plot at 20 yards, looking right down my arrow and double punched the record button. And so we didn't get any footage of him um, really coming in or getting shot or falling over. And he fell over within 50 yards. So I was like, Man, I, I, I hate that for him. I hate that for me. But I, at that point, I kind of was like, you know what? If, if anybody's going to screw up, I want it to be me. So mm -hmm. I don't have to, you know, deal with anybody else. And then it got to the point of where I really enjoyed the challenge of self-filming and making quality video by self-filming because that is probably the hardest thing i've ever done hunting i mean it, i mean anybody that's tried it knows anybody can put a camera on a camera arm keep it zoomed out hit record and, and shoot a deer but trying to zoom in and get good quality footage and then uh make the shot on top of it it's just such a challenge and i love it i mean i look forward to it every year it's cost me some deer too for sure Man, so how important is a camera arm to you? I mean, is it fourth arrow? Like I, for me, I, I you bought a, a cheap hot camera arm, and I had yeah. some issues with it, and and you yeah. know self filming, man, it's tough enough. You are you don't you don't need to any more comp complicated anymore with a with a cheap camera arm that's gonna lean on you. But yes. so I mean, how important is that, and what would you recommend in terms of camera arms? Absolutely, camera arm is important. Um, you get what you pay for. There's no question about it, and I would definitely do the fourth. Oh, I lost you for a second. Okay, yeah, the phone was ringing. Uh, <laughs> anyways, the fourth arrow is definitely what I would recommend. It's what I'm using, and you get what you pay for. Um, the fourth arrow I've been using now is the, it's the carbon one. I forget what they even call it, but it's the carbon one, and it does a good job. I still don't think it's perfect. There's some things I would improve on it. I know they just came out with a newer base. I'm probably going to try that this year. I think it'll be a little more rock solid. But uh, camera arm is absolutely essential. I mean, that's the, you know, a lot of those camera arms, you even touch them and you're you're going to see your video just bouncing like this or, or it's not going to pivot right or your camera's going to fall down, your whole camera arm fall down, you know. Yeah. Um, so... But I really like the fourth arrow. It's, it's done a pretty good job. I also really like the – I used to have the older older Muddy um, camera arm, and I think you can pick them up pretty reasonable now. Believe it or not, that was a really good camera arm. I really like that camera arm. The only thing is it was a bit heavy, definitely bulky. The fourth arrow is so much slimmer, and you can use multiple bases and so on. So overall, I would definitely recommend the fourth arrow for sure. So when it comes down to, to cameras, I know you're talking about DSLRs versus camcorders. I think a, a place that I might have messed up is I went straight for the DSLR <laughs> and and it was tough. It was really tough trying to trying to zoom in on a lens and and focus mm -hmm. and all those things. So I mean what kind of what brand of camera are you using? I see a lot of people nowadays filming hunting with uh with Sony's. I know Sony's uh, a really good camera. What but yep. what's your what's your personal choice? So so here's my opinion. And solely my opinion, but as far as lenses go, there is not a perfect lens out there. Yeah. That really frustrates me really bad. And and they, they have the capabilities fully to do it, but they don't do it on purpose. I mean, it doesn't make sense for them to do that. Why would they do that? Because then they wouldn't be able to sell multiple lenses. You know, everybody would just want one lens. You want a low, the lowest f-stop lens you can get preferably a fixed one which you're going to have your that'll be your prime lenses but um, the sony's are definitely a popular camera the a7s definitely are very popular however what you get with them 
is, and keep in mind, I'm talking about doing a lot of self filming Mm -hmm. is you get into a lot of weight out there on your camera arm, especially when you get your bigger lenses and that camera is a bit heavier. And, um, I decided not to go that that route, even though they're really good in low light and everything else. So I film with a Panasonic GH5S. And that's, you got to make sure you get the one with the S because it has got a different sensor in it. And it is a lot better in low light than the GH5. It does a really good job. Matter of fact, last year when I was filming, it could actually keep up with the amount of light that I had left. To, to shoot so as far as lenses go i run two different lenses typically i do have a wide angle lens that i do a lot of commentaries with or you know pov angle if i'm holding the camera by myself and kind of film myself whatever and that's a roken on i can't remember what it is i think it's a 12 millimeter don't hold me mm-hmm. to that but then i've got two panasonic lenses i've got a this is a cheaper lens. It's the 45 to 200 millimeter. And the f-stop on it, I believe, is 4 to 5.6. And then my prime lens, which I really, really like, is the um, 35 to 100 millimeter Panasonic lens. And it's a fixed f2.8. And a lot of people wonder what an f-stop is and what that exactly means. And what that, and, and the easiest way possible I can tell you is that when you have a fixed f-stop, you're going to have one lighting locked in. So when you zoom in, it's not going to change. Where if you buy a lens that says an f-stop of 4 to 5.6, when you're zoomed all the way out, you're going to be at an f-stop of 4, unless you bump it up. But you can't go any lower than 4. And then when you zoom in, say you zoom in all the way, you're going to be at a 5.6. So whereas the fixed f-stops, you know, a 2.8, I zoom in or out, it's fixed right there at 2.8. And that might not seem like a huge deal, but it is, especially when you're running out of low light or you're in low light, you know, at the last part of the hunt or the beginning of a hunt. So, and they're a lot, lot clearer. The f-stop, the lower is the more, uh, the shallower depth of field. So what that means is your your target will be more in focus and your background will be more blurred. And that's how you see a lot of those really crisp images or or um, video clips. Yeah. So we talked about, you know, self-filming as a, a really hard discipline. You know, maybe you could share with the listener just maybe your worst story or the biggest buck that you have not got to get a shot at because of your commitment to self-filming. Sure. Um, on that DVD where we shot those two bucks in the same morning, matter of fact, it was a week before that I was filming with a camcorder by myself and I actually grunted in a really nice buck. And this is all on video. It's, he's about probably 170 inches at least Mm. and grunted him in eight o'clock in the morning. Beautiful footage comes right to me. Eight yards. He's at eight yards. And I'm at full draw, and I'm getting ready to shoot. And I happen to thankfully look down, and in between my uh, in between my cables on my bow and my string was my LCD screen of my camcorder. Had I fired, I would have completely ripped off that LCD screen, and might have lost the camera. Definitely, probably would have missed the buck. I mean, it's gonna. Who knows what your arrow would have done. Mm-hmm. And so I tried readjust and, you know, the, the buck took a few more steps. And then I was trying to push the camera with my bow to get over on him. I mean, he's at 10, 15 yards. And long story short, I wasn't able to shoot him. I had to let him go. And I never saw that buck again. Oh, no. Man, and that's we, wild. That's that's a different kind of commitment to hunting. I've, ne- I've never is. seen a 170-inch deer. Yeah, something I, I tell the Team Rago guys, and they kind of think I'm crazy, but and and I 100% mean this, is your camera is your number one weapon. Your bow is your second weapon. And if you can commit to that and honestly practice that, you will create epic videos. And for me, it's not about the trophy wall. You know, uh, definitely have a lot, a lot of bucks on the wall downstairs. But bottom line is that they're they're collecting dust. And I can, you know, have somebody over and tell them a story, which is, pretty cool neat whatever 
But when I can go back and actually relive those moments and those stories, that to me is worth more than a mount on my wall. So that's me personally. And I know a few guys on Team Hack will definitely feel that way. You know, we got a mixture of guys. There's guys that are just straight up killers. They, you know, they want to they wanna shoot a big buck at all costs if they can, you know. And if they have to, they might bump the camera or something goes wrong. But then you got a more dedicated guy that, you know, will really hone in on the camera before he ever even thinks about pulling the trigger. Matter of fact, that buck I was telling you about that I'm chasing this year, I had him last year at uh, about 35, 40 yards. And I never once got my bow off the hanger. I was still filming. And he just never gave me the opportunity, which is something else I will recommend for self-filming. A lot of people don't think about this, and I really haven't heard anybody say this much, but thumb release is crucial because when you have a thumb release, you put your thumb release already on your D-loop, so it's already there. So when you're filming and you let go of your camera and that, that deer is right there where you want him, all you're doing is sticking your fingers in your, in your thumb release, pulling the bow back, letting her eat. Whereas with the, with the finger release, you got to try to hit your D loop. Hopefully you're not shaking too bad. <laughs> and you got to get that clipped on, then look back up and all that good stuff. And I'm sure, you know, every single second counts. So shaving off just a couple or a few seconds can be all the difference in the world. And I can tell it's already definitely paid off for me. And plus it made me a lot more accurate as well. So it was a win-win situation. Yeah, I know a lot of people are moving to the the hook style release because of that. I mean, the, uh, there, there's a wrist strap release that has a hook, and apparently it's supposed to be easier to find your D-loop. I got one, but I still have a back tension and a thumb release. What what thumb release are you shooting this year? I'm shooting, I've been shooting for the last two years, the Carter, Carter Weiss choice. Okay. Yep, yeah. and really, really like that release. And just a funny story, we just got back from our elk hunt in Oregon, and uh chris what the guy that was hunting with me i watched a video clip but we're, we're putting we're piecing that hunt all together right now and i was watching a video clip and it literally took him i'd say five or six seconds to get hooked onto his d loop it's because you're you're trying to watch the animal with trying to get your release hooked on to your d loop and everything going at the same time plus he was trying to film his angle with his own camera and that's exactly what I'm talking about, you know, because like me, my my thumb release is already on the bow. I'm focused solely on my camera, just holding my bow. And when the moment is right, you come to full draw fast and you make it happen. Yeah, I mean, that's especially important for people that are videoing, you know, maybe yeah. maybe you got a couple more seconds if you're not videoing. But, you know, he's, yeah. he might step at it with, with you guys in that quality content focus of, of zoomed in of close, maybe someone getting wanting to get a slow motion. There's not a lot of frame right there to work with. So a few no. steps, it's like that's that's seconds yeah, and that's, that's the video gone. Game over. Yeah, it's game over. Yes. How'd your how'd your elk hunt go? I know we, we pushed this out a couple of weeks because of that, but you guys end up being successful. Yes. Awesome. I, uh, that was my first bull actually. Oh, wow. uh, I, I, I've hunted public, uh, several times in the past in Colorado. I missed a bull before and I've passed some really small bulls out there, but nothing that I was really after. And then we, I knew a guy that knew this place. So, um, got a hold of him and, and asked Chris if he'd like to go. And then Jake was willing to come film everything. And uh, it worked out awesome, man. I mean, we got there and the elk were already bugling. We went through some crazy weather. And then the, actually before I shot my bull, I actually missed a bigger bull like 35 minutes before that. Oh, wow. And uh, the reason is, I mean, I'm, a, I'm not going to brag, but I'm a pretty good shot. I mean, I, <laughs> 60, 70 yards, I'm, I'm okay. I can, I can shoot that all day. And I practiced a lot this year for this elk hunt. And... I had a range on this elk. However, the elevation is so steep where this bull was at that my rangefinder doesn't do the whole arc, mm -hmm. you know, however far it is. And I ranged it and it just didn't seem right. But I'm like, oh, you know, when your rangefinder tells you that, you shoot, I guess. And yep. I shot, and sure enough, I shot right over his back. So that kind of woke me up a little bit and just a little tip for any of you guys going out west you definitely wouldn't definitely need a rangefinder 
that does the arc uh, compensation. So I will be definitely getting one of them soon. <laughs> yeah. How far was the bull? Uh, the bull was actually the bull ranged at sixty five, but I probably should have shot him for maybe fifty. Maybe mm-hmm. fifty. I'm talking. So was I'm he talking was he down. below you or above you? Down, down below. That's a yep. tough angle. Yep. I, I mean, it it should have been a slam dunk. It was wide open. Everything was good, but it is what it is because forty five minutes later, <laughs> you just have to watch this video because it is absolutely insane. So how we did this is we set up with the guy calling behind us, and then Chris and I would just split off side to side, you know, maybe 20 yards apart. And whoever the bull would come to first, that's who shot. And needless to say, on my bull, um, I only shot him once. Thankfully, I made uh, a perfect shot. I mean, it's 15 yards. Um, However, Chris shot twice, (laughs) and uh, he missed the first shot. I shot and got him the second shot. The bull ran, almost ran him completely over. And as he was whirling away, Chris was able to let an arrow fly. And he shot him and it entered about at the back ham. And it came out right underneath the jaw on, on my Ooh. bull. The penetration was out of this world. And uh, that's something we did this year, too. We switched up our arrows, shot it shooting a heavier arrow. and uh, um, we put a heavier insert in, and we were shooting the um, the G5 V2, Striker V2 broadheads. Unreal, man. Unreal. But long story short, yeah, it was epic. And then three days later, we we uh, we did a devil, devil march. I mean, it was awful. Over three or four mountaintops to oh. get to Chris's bull. To get to Chris's bull. And, you know, first call, the Joker turned and started running right to us. And... He also was 15 yards, and Chris was able to get three arrows off at him. Oh, wow. <laughs> Man, it seems like you guys got some good target practice out there. <laughs> well, especially Chris. I mean, yeah. He, he, he was just letting them fly. But it That's was awesome. Uh, yeah, it, it's going to be a really cool video. I'm excited for everybody to see it. Hopefully, hopefully in a couple weeks we'll have her ready to air. Yeah, man. It sounds like he came home with an empty quiver. He's going to spend another 140 bucks on some more arrows. <laughs> Exactly. Yep. <laughs> so, what did you guys switch up to? I this year I switched to Easton FMJs. I think five millimeter. Wanted to go with something heavier. Now when I go to the range, I lose four or five field points every time sticking them through the bag. Like I mean, I'm burying them up into the the fletchings. And so, what yeah. did you guys switch to? How, how many grain are you at? I'm at four ninety five. Four ninety five. We were at five fifteen. Oh. We we're shooting the gold tip um, hunter. Um, I can't remember exactly what it was now. The gold tip hunter is it three hundred something? I can't remember exactly what it is now. Dang it! Without me going to look. Um, but we put a one hundred grain brass insert into In the, the front. front. Okay. Exactly. Yep. And man, you would talk about. I, I noticed the same thing, man. Shooting out here on my range in the backyard, I was blowing through targets. I mean, wow, the penetration was nuts. I'm like. This is going to be pretty devastating with one of those strikers on the front of these arrows. And uh, that's what we did, you know. And another thing, too, is we, we were shooting our uh, light and knocks because it is legal in Oregon to use light and knocks. So we we're shooting the nocturnals. And I really like those knocks. However, I don't like how they turn off. They're kind of a real pain the way mm-hmm. they're how they turn off. I don't like that at all. But um, we practiced with all that on every single shot, you know, so we knew we were going to dole the heck out of our broadheads, whatnot. And we did that on purpose. And then that way come go time, we bought, you know, got more broadheads, put them on brand new tips. So everything should be all the same. And and it was, I mean, everything worked out great. Yeah. One thing I didn't like about those nocturnals is I had the ones that would, they would flash several Uh different colors and I would get to full draw and it would, it would look like someone was just flashing a light in the corner of my eye. And I was like, I can't do this. Yeah. 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 I I have some of them too. And we was actually practicing. And uh, what I noticed definitely is the strobe light, which is I think red and green. Mm -hmm. uh, It uh, was not even a fraction, a fraction as bright as the green ones. So I, I switched to all green. And man, they light up like nobody's business. That's awesome. Is that G5? Is that a, a fixed blade? Yes. Yep. 
You use that for whitetails as for whitetail as well? No. I mean, yeah, you can. Have yeah, but do you? Pretty pretty good cutting diameter. I think it's inch and a quarter cutting diameter. But the the V two so they have the original striker. The V two they had a they they fixed a little bit on it to make it a true balanced uh, fixed blade broadhead. And I know a lot of people claim this, but I can I mean I've got the video to prove it. It's it's on video, but I took my field tips off, screwed these on, and literally shot the exact same as my field tips. Every single every single broadhead. Now one thing I did do on my arrows though, before I ever did put on the broadheads is when you go to glue in your inserts, you you turn your broadhead to where um, your cock vein's up, and then you got your uh, broadhead, and I always take the broadhead and put, it's a three blade, so I take one of those blades and make sure it's straight up and straight even with that cock vein, and then you go ahead and you um, glue in your insert that way. But yeah, the V2 did a really good job. Uh, for whitetails, we use the G5 Dead Meats, which is a three blade. three blade. Yeah, three blade uh, expandable. Yep, and we've had really good luck with them. Yeah, no, those are those are ones that well, some of the the issues that I have with other expandables is that you, there's there's a lot of I'm not gonna name any company names because they all work, but there's some that have to they have to actually open. But the dead meats are kind of they're already there, right? Like you can shoot and they just deploy right there. Like they don't ha- they don't have to catch skin or rib or anything like that to open. Um, well, I mean, on impact is what it takes to, to open them. Yes. Um, so basically if you remember the G5 T3 broadhead, which is a very popular broadhead, they basically improved that broadhead and named it the dead meat. But what it is, it's got a real little, I think it's plastic. Don't hold me to that. It's, I think it's plastic stuff, real hard plastic or polycarbon, uh, clip and the back of these blades actually have just a little just a little uh tit on the on the sides of them and they push right down to this clip and i mean they are solid like you can take your finger and punch on those blades and they will not open now if you hit something a little hard aka white tail or skin or anything it will deploy that blade and push it straight back so there's no rubber bands or anything like that it's just um it's upon impact it just pushes the blade straight back. Yeah. Well, that's cool, man. So I'm glad you guys are successful on your elk hunt, by the way, too. That's that's really Thank awesome. You. Looking forward to Thank watching that video. So something that you guys do really well is you manage for whitetail really well. You know, you kill a lot of Boone and Crockett deer, <laughs> and I, I, I classify a lot as anything over one because that's a, that's a once-in-a-lifetime deer for most people. So, you know, what do you— what do you look at or how do you think about whitetail management holistically throughout the whole year and kind of what does that look like? Because I think a lot of people have this view of, you know, I'm a whitetail hunter. I put corn out a week before season starts and all I have is does and that's, I don't have any quality bucks. Like they don't do anything apart the other parts of the year. How do you do this holistic management approach for whitetail? Well, I mean, I, I've been in pretty much every category that you're, that you can think of from the weekend warrior to where I'm at now. Um, yeah. and I mean, that, that's how we all start. I'd say every single hunter. And the thing that really got me was I was chasing a specific buck I called rapper. And that's the buck that my buddy double punched on the record button. And finally the store, I followed him for five years. And finally when he was, uh, I'm sorry, four years, four years. And I killed him when he was five and a half years old. And I had so many different encounters with that deer and I learned so much from that deer and that just truly hooked me. I mean, hook, line, sinker, he had me and it was so awesome. I was able to shoot that deer and and get him and everything. Um, And that really hooked me. And then it kind of just evolved from there as far as food plots or habitat management. And I've kind of evolved in that aspect. Definitely every year, it seems like. Because it goes from focusing on just whitetails to where I'm at now. You know, I think about all game, not just whitetails. Every every single thing. Quail, pheasant, your bees, your pollinators, your pollinator programs, all your different government programs. You put your grasses in here in Illinois. Um, the whole burning aspect of it, which we do on, on our property, we do about 150, 160 acres of burning every year. And I really enjoy that. And it's one of the cheapest and most sufficient habitat tools you can ever do 
I mean, it's 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 a it's a basically a restart button, and it works awesome. And also, just doing like I said, the food plots. I I'm all about trial and error. I I don't like taking anybody's word for anything. <laughs> I, I need to try it myself, and and see. And even then, if I think it does work, I still think there might be something better out there. Like today, I just checked on a uh, test plot. So the, this will be my third year, I believe, doing this. I've got a two-acre section, and I split it up, and I plant a different fall product of seed in each each place, and I cage each one of them, and then I observe the the browsing pressure on each one of those products. And I don't do plant um, samples or or any 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 of that stuff telling you how many how many how many percent of proteins in it and all that good stuff i don't tell you none of that i can just tell you that the deer prefer this one over that one etc mm-hmm. you know you can you can uh, so many people say that you know it's, it's a big misconception in my opinion is you know they they claim these products out there have such high uh, protein content such high etc and bottom line is deer can only consume so much and hold and retain so much protein just like a human and you know if they don't like the product what is the point of planting it you know i mean you're not going to see this guy waking up drinking a gallon of muscle milk every morning i mean not happening i would hope not <laughs> right now um that's that's kind of where I'm at with that and, and watching the deer and, and observing what they like or don't like. I really enjoy doing that. And I've, I've learned a lot over just the last three years on what they're liking and what they don't really care for. And then at what time of year they like it versus don't like it. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, it's it's 365 degree, or 365 days a year, you know all the management and everything that goes into it. I'm always observing. And as far as passing bucks, I, I tell everybody this, and this is, this is the rule on our place. And I totally don't hold it against anybody that does it differently at all. But we like to shoot bucks that are five and a half years old or older, build a storyline with them and, and try to do that. However, one exception on our place is if they have eight points or less and they're four and a half years old, they have to be at least four, then they're on the target list you can shoot. Um, that's just something we do here. Not saying it's right or wrong, but uh, it seems to be working. And um, and I know a lot of the other guys, especially on Team Radical, are the same way. They're trying to shoot the most mature buck they possibly can. Some guys even want, want to try to wait till they get six and a half, you know. I don't really have that in my in my tolerance yet. I mean, I'm not, the, not that seasoned yet, I guess. But um, bottom line is, I'm to the point where if it makes you happy, shoot it. I mean, plain and simple. If it gets you excited, you you should uh, you should shoot a deer for you and not for anybody else or for social media fame or any other bullcrap. Because there's plenty of that going on out there every single day, and uh, it's quite frustrating. Yeah, no, it definitely is. So in terms of your farm. How many, what's the pressure like on your farm, number of people that are, that are hunting on it, and how many acres? I think getting giving people a good gauge, because I think a lot of people, states like Michigan, states like Oklahoma, there's people that got, you know, they got a permission to a piece of land. For instance, I got a permission to 40 acres at home, and there's six, four, five or six people that'll try to hunt that. Now, getting that in their head is is a different thing, but how do, how do you kind of break that down in terms of how many people you want on your land, how much it can sustain, all that stuff? Okay. Well, first of all, I want to make this known is I have five different properties I can hunt. I have, we have the home farm here, but I also like a challenge of doing things different every once in a while. This year, I'm really excited and, and I do it just to prove it to myself, I guess, more than anything. Mm -hmm. But, uh, so the home farm, I'll just give you a breakdown of the home farm. The home farm is approximately 1200 acres. However, it's a gravel pit. It's like a it's like a big gravel pit. We've mined it out over the years, so we've got pond, a lot of ponds and so forth. So you can't consider all that, even though nobody else is allowed to hunt it. It's not really huntable ground. The primary area that I hunt is about 
75 to 100 acres tops. And I I have neighbors on, let's see, on two sides of me that um, will definitely shoot anything, anything at all. I mean, sometimes I don't even know if they're shooting at a deer or a squirrel. Um, <laughs> happens to a lot of people. <laughs> right, which in turn really helps me, and that kind of changed the game for me, to be honest, um, because now I'm to the point where the biggest key factor, in my opinion, for the success I've had anyways, is I'm an edge hunter. That doesn't mean hunting on an edge of a field every single time. That means whether it's on an edge of a creek and my access and exit is perfect, whether it's on an edge of a bluff where my access and exit is perfect and I can hunt the winds right, or, yes, over a field edge, um, not necessarily right over the food plot, maybe down from it just a little bit so they're passing by me to get to the food or, or coming from the food. So I, I do all of that. And that, I think, has definitely been a huge, huge factor in success. So what I'm doing is is I'm allowing everything else to be sanctuary for the deer. So all the neighbors and so forth, they're just pushing the deer in there. And I know the deer are there. I, I'm positive they're there, but I don't step foot in there at all. Not once. I don't hang a trail camera in there. Nothing. Do not step foot at all until probably, I'd say, March. I'll shed hunt it, you know, look for shed antlers. and um, But then even then I'll do it for maybe one or two days and then I'm out and you'll never see me in that again. So I really like doing that. and uh, I know a lot of pe- other people that's had success doing the exact same thing. And um, so that's, that's the home farm. This year, something I did different is we have some old strip mine ground. That's a total of 10 acres, 10 whopping acres. And there is a one acre spot that's, that was bare however is up a rock cliff and there was no way to access to even get up to it so i took a uh, a dozer and i built a road actually 30 foot tall to get up to the top and got um, some implement uh, equipment went in there and brought some tw- topsoil in there worked it all up and i planted a fall plot and i've checked my cameras a total of three times now there and so far, every single pull, I've had a different buck. Last pull, I had probably a 160-inch eight-point, um, probably a 155, 160-inch t- ten-point, and a couple other really nice young up-and-comers. And over there, what I'm doing is, if it excites me and it comes out, I'm going to shoot it. I don't care if it's four. I don't care if it's three. I don't care if it's eight. I'm going to shoot it if it makes me happy because um, it's 10 acres. I mean, yeah. you can try to manage 10 acres, but let's be honest, it's not going to happen. I mean, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's just not, an, it's not enough. It's not yeah. enough. And then I've got another property that I actually got permission on, um, through a buddy, um, hunting another piece of property and he asked me to hunt it with him. And I set cameras out there this year and got some pictures of some really, really good bucks. I've, there's, we got one that's like a, a 15 pointer. And I'd say he'd be really close to 170s. And I've got a lot of pictures of him. And I was on the, that property for a total of four hours and hung three trail cameras and was able to pick them up that quick. And a lot of that was just by doing the aerial studying before ever stepping foot on the property. So as a lot of people say, I know Don Higgins swears by it too, is, you know, um, the less amount, the least amount of human intrusion, the better. Always, always. Yeah. So those, those are kind of the properties I'm hunting this year. And as far as food plots go, if you're wondering acreage-wise how much food plots I have, I would say I've got four acres of standing soybeans, and I've got probably five or six acres of fall plots planted across all those. Yeah, so I don't know what it looks like for you in terms of if you have to purchase land or if it's family land or kind of how it works, but if you were going to take your own money, some money that you saved, 
are you going to worry? What are the things you're going to think about in terms of land acquisition? Is it going to have to have water? Is it going to have to have a certain threshold of timber before it'd be something that you'd be interested in? Or what's that kind of breakdown look like for someone that's maybe got some cash that wants to buy some land, but doesn't really know what it needs to hold? Sure. Um, first thing I'm doing is I'm looking at, um, you know, how, how it lays out as far as how can I access and exit this land? That is the key, no matter what, no matter even what the ground looks like before you, when you start drawing up your ideas in your head, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, another thing I I'm definitely looking for, and you're going to pay more money for this, but you're looking for, does this land give any payback? I mean, let's be honest. You don't want to buy a solid chunk of timber with no timber value and no open areas for any tillable ground. And you have literally no income on this ground. Like just realistically, most people can't afford to do that. And so that's definitely something I'm, I look into. And I like putting a lot of, of ground into um, like they have here a, a pollinator program, CP42. And it's got uh, some grasses in it, and it's also got a lot of forbs, obviously for the for the pollinators, and it pays pretty good money. It actually pays more than our uh, cash rent here for our tillable ground. And so I like to look at those things for sure. And then obviously I'm looking at is there any log value on this property? Because I like, you know, a lot of people like the wide open forest floor in in a timber, but to be honest, that is like terrible. That's terrible. That's not what you want. You want it thick and nasty. You want to be able to hold as many deer as humanly possible and have new and young tender vegetation. That will hold your deer. And obviously, yes, I'm looking for bedding areas. Where 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 can they bed at? Where do I think they're bedding at? Do they have food? Where can I provide food if they don't have food already? And definitely water. Water is definitely something to look forward to. And I really like looking at ground that's close to rivers. I don't know why, but I just feel like a lot of the bigger bucks come from from river ground, river bottom ground, you know, or semi close to them. Another big thing, too, is genetics. I know a lot of people don't talk about it, but let's face it, there's different genetics in, in the whitetails on what am I looking for? Am I am I I don't mean to offend anybody, but I'm not going to go to Michigan you know, where there's a lot, a ton of pressure and, you know, the bucks can't reach full maturity and, you know, they're not going to be as big, big of antlers. And that's why I'm, I'm looking here where you go just 45 minutes uh, south of me and you can clearly tell that the genetics are not as good as my area or the two or three surrounding counties around me. And you can just tell that by heck your social media you can tell by the record books you can there's all kinds of different ways to to see that and but it all boils down to what you're wanting and as far as the ground lays out too and i, I know i've been talking to a couple of friends about this is i'm really looking for a ground that was kind of forgot about i guess where you know it's it doesn't look that appealing at first but i'm envisioning what i can do to this property to make it prime, whether it's, you know, bringing all the different implements in and take a part of a wooded area out and make some, make a food source or take the, take the mature timber, timber off the land and create it a lot thicker, open the sunlight to the forest floor. That way, you know, you're going to get new vegetation. It's going to get a lot thicker and, and that'll in turn definitely hold deer. So those are just some of the things I'm looking at, uh, looking at a property. And as far as the home farm, I didn't say, but that is a family farm. So it is not just me hunting it. Uh, my grandpa hunts, my dad hunts, my brother hunts, my sister hunts. And thankfully, they've gave, given me pretty much the reins on what to do and when to do it. You know, at least they're, they're uh, respectful enough to, to uh, listen to that part of it. But from there, you know, my dad's shot a lot of nice bucks. That's who got me started hunting. Uh, I love, love taking my grandpa hunting. He's always a, a comical guy to take hunting. <laughs> he can't hear out of one ear, and sometimes I think he's half blind. And we <laughs> have a really good time. And then my yeah. sister, she hunts just a little bit, not as much. And 
my brother, if it doesn't have anything to do with airplanes, um, he's kind of just spaced out. And But he has shot some nice bucks on our place for sure, too, though. That's cool, man. I'm glad that you guys have that as a family. Yeah, it, we have a lot of fun. What uh, is something that I would consider, and I don't know if you've ever seen this play out, but maybe for someone that doesn't come from a farming background or has no uh, no idea how to do anything agriculturally, would you ever consider, for someone like that, would you recommend for them to allow a farmer maybe to lease some ground from them just for farming purposes for whitetail? So someone that come in, maybe plants winter wheat or corn or soybeans, and harvest those, and they're still allowed to hunt around it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a farmer by any means. I don't farm. Uh, I didn't know anything about it when I started at all. Um, <clears throat> but absolutely, if you got tillable ground and you got farmers in the area, once again, that's that's income in your pocket. Uh, if you on the ground, definitely rent it out to the farmer. However, I would be I would be very strict with the farmer saying, you harvest this but you're leaving this, whether it's two acres, specifically where you want it and how much you want, that's all in your control. And definitely that's what I would do. And I think it would take one time for the farmer to mess up and we'd be finding a new farmer. Because, <laughs> you know, once those crops are picked and they're gone, well, they're gone. They ain't coming back to the following year. So it can really mess up your hunting. And if you on the ground, that's not okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. So one thing I wanted to wrap up with is you talk, you gave a little bit of foresight into a deer that you're excited about hunting this year. What can you yep. tell us about that deer right now? He's huge, man. Uh, his, we call him Uno. If you get, if you follow us at all on Facebook or Instagram, you'll you'll see him. Um, but basically, this is the I believe sixth year I've been following this deer. I think so. 2000, let's see, 2014, he would have been two, and it's 2019. So this be into the sixth season, yeah. Um, so the first year I got pictures of him. I saved some pictures, got some video of him. I'm not sure if he was two or three then. He had one brow tine. He's just a little eight-pointer, probably, I don't know, 110 inches maybe. And he had, But he had one brow tine that was quite taller than the other one. It's like, oh, okay, that deer should be recognizable. So I was like, well, we'll just, you know, call him Uno. And I know people make fun of calling deer names or whatever, but it really helps for reference. It really does. So that's why we do it, and it's fun. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, so then the following year, the same same thing. He, he got bigger. He blew up into probably 145-inch mainframe 8. The one brow was still really tall, and then the other brow, he he split that brow, and but it was still short. And I actually had an encounter with him, and I could have shot him at 30 yards that year and didn't, thankfully. And then the following year, just absolutely exploded. Mainframe eight, and both brows were complete towers. They're probably, that year they were probably 12, 13 inches tall at least, and he split that one brow just a great big fork and it was he was huge just a huge eight and i'll be honest he was either four or five that year i'm not sure but didn't have any encounters with him didn't even see him during season that year so didn't think much of it and then the following year which comes to 2017 yes 2017 set my trail cameras out in velvet and i can't even put in the words what I was what was going through my mind when I looked at those pictures. It just looked like it was fake. I mean, the rack was just out of this world, gigantic. I'm talking 200 inches. I'm talking mm -hmm. 200 inches. And he had both brows still extremely tall, the one still split. And he was a, now a mainframe 10 pointer. And his brows were probably 11, 12 inches tall total then. And I did have one encounter with him that year. Almost got the job done, not quite. That brings us to 2018, this past season. I had a game plan on what I was going to do and everything, and I ended up having three encounters with him. He was a mainframe 10, but he went downhill a little bit last season. He was probably um, – he was cleaner, though. He was, I think 
I like the clean typical look personally. Yeah. He was cleaner straight ten and he was probably mid or probably low one eighties, maybe maybe mid one eighties. So I'm like, oh man, you know, this deer is really starting to go downhill. But I had three encounters with him, almost got the job done, have video on, uh had some good video of him and everything that's on our vlog on YouTube. And didn't get the job done though. So that brings us to twenty nineteen. High anticipation. Got pretty scared though because our crops didn't get in till super late. And I checked my cameras. I've got this deer on camera in velvet, literally in the exact same place every single year that now for the sixth season. So six summers in a row in the same place, which typically doesn't happen here. Usually the deer rotate from one field to another field. You know, when it goes from corn to beans, back from beans to corn. They'll rotate those fields every other year. This bug did not do that every single year. And uh, long story short, I was looking for these pictures and wasn't getting any, wasn't getting any, wasn't getting any. And it was that time of year where I should have been getting those pictures. So I'm like, uh oh, I don't know if the deer made it. And the last visual encounter was actually middle of January. So I knew he made it through season. And uh, finally, I think it was almost middle of middle towards maybe the 20th of august i got a picture of him and holy cow he's huge 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 he's probably if not his biggest it's really close to his biggest rack he's ever grew um mainframe 10 again he's got a little kicker off the g2 this year and his brow tines i think are the tallest they've ever been and his twos threes and fours man he's stacked um, just an incredible, incredible whitetail. So I've got my idea now. One thing to know about this deer is he does not live on us during the season. There's nothing I can do to entice this deer to want to stay. Sometimes there's just deer that do that. And you, it sucks that it's this deer, but <laughs> he, <laughs> he is he, he is on our property um, at, at a specific time of the, of the season. And it's usually about, I've got about a one- one and a half week period of getting the job done or it's over. He's gone. And I, and I won't see him in daylight again. I might see him night cruise once or twice here and there on camera, but that'll be it. So I'm really focused on that deer. We call him Uno, like I said, and I'm planning on keeping complete pressure off this farm totally until at, at the minimum late October and season here starts October 1st. So, Late October, I'll move in there, and hopefully I can seal the deal this year. It's been quite the story, and uh, tons of pictures, video, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And One thing that's cost me, though, and this is something I tell people, too, is don't get too wrapped up in a deer. You know, I got, I got, I've got really wrapped up into this deer up until this past season. You know, I was focusing on killing that deer only. That was it, and I did it for two seasons, and I didn't shoot a buck. It got to the point of where I, I sit in the tree stand and realized I wasn't having fun. I, I wasn't. I was seeing the same scenery. I was hunting the same deer. I was looking at other deer like, you know, they're nothing. All I wanted to see was that one deer. And I I decided this year, actually in the last year, decided no more of that. I'm, I'm not doing that. You know, you need to enjoy it, have fun, or why else are you out there? Obviously, if I shot the deer, you know, things would have been different. But <laughs> yeah. But, but in all honesty, it got to the point where it really made you start thinking, like, man, why, why am I doing this? So that's why I switched it up this year. I've got a couple different options, a couple different properties to go to. I've got some nice bucks on there, and like I told you earlier, I don't care if it's a three, four, five year old, six year old, ten year old. If he looks big and gets me excited, I am going to release the arrow. Yeah. Are you guys a one buck, one buck state or two? Two buck state. Oh, that, that'll yeah, make that it a little easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If it was a one-buck state, yeah, uh, I would retract probably that entire state. Yeah. <laughs> when's your when's your uh, your one week of opportunity? Early November, late October? When's it? Um, it is going to be from basically November 1st to November 12th. Man, I hope you Pretty get it done. I'm, I'm going to be thinking about you that time of the year. Oh man, I'm gonna need it. I'm gonna need Mother Nature to be on my side first and foremost, and 
and hopefully these darn crops get out. I mean, we still got our crops in right now, and I'd say we're at least a week, if not two weeks out from them even getting into the field here, which is bad news. I hate, hate, hate when the crops are in. Mm -hmm. Um, It really just holds them deer. So hopefully they get those crops out and get those deer really pushing in, and um, hopefully we'll get get her done here in 2019. Yeah, man. Well, I, I wish you the best of luck this season, not just you, the entire team. Looking forward to what you guys are going to be putting out and watching that elk hunt. Uh, but I really appreciate you jumping on for an hour late on a Wednesday night, man. That, that means a lot, and I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while, so I really appreciate you jumping on. Hey, not a problem, man. I'm glad you had me, and like I said, best of luck to you, best of luck to your listeners, and hopefully everybody just has a good, safe season. Yeah, man. Well, I'm going to bring you back on as soon as you kill that deer, so I I need that to happen. (laughs) Hey, guys. Thank you so much for consuming the Hunter's Advantage podcast. We really appreciate it, and we really do do the podcast for you all. And just to stay in tune with that and what you guys want to hear, feel free to message us on Facebook or Instagram on who you would like to see on the podcast next.